Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And our, our theme this year is progress and its discontents. And I'm particularly pleased to welcome our speaker, um, Dr. Caroline Lucas, MP. Um, Caroline, as many of you will know, is the MP for Brighton Pavilion. Um, but she has a history before that. She uh, studied at Exeter University and also in the United States and then returned to Exeter to do a, to do a PhD, I believe, in uh, Elizabethan literature. Um, she's worked for many campaigns uh, early on for CND, but many others as well. She's worked for Oxfam um, in different capacities and she has been a local councillor in Britain but also an MEP for um, about a decade, I think a little over a decade, before she became a Member of Parliament in Westminster. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, Caroline Lucas has developed a powerful public voice in our um, collective public life. And um, she, she, I think, along with her party, have marked a, a sort of space that's clearly progressive, some people think of Green parties as sort of cutting across conventional left-right perspectives, but I think it's fair to say that she and her party are somehow on the left. And it's in that spirit that I think she's going to talk to us today um, about some of the issues that are facing us with the upcoming referendum. So can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Dr Caroline Lucas. Well, thank you so much for that uh, kind invitation uh, and kind uh, invitation to speak here today um, and that kind introduction, I should say. It is a great privilege to have been invited to give a lecture in honour of Ralph Miliband and I hope that as a committed internationalist he would at least approve of the subject that we're discussing tonight. I'm not quite sure which side he would have fallen down on, uh, but I think he'd have liked the idea we were talking about the issue of the EU and the UK's relationship to it. And of course, it's a very timely moment to be having this discussion. The fundamental questions, I think, are being brought into sharp focus by the unfolding of what looks increasingly like a humanitarian disaster so very close to home. The refugee crisis across our continent is deepening day by day. There are desperate scenes barely 100 miles from here at Calais and 1,600 miles away on the border between Greece and Macedonia. And these events cause us, I think, to reflect on the kind of people we are and the kind of European Union we want to build. And so with the sideshow, really, of David Cameron's renegotiation out of the way, I think we can now really debate the real issues at the heart of the question of whether we go or stay. And perhaps there was never going to be a good time to hold a referendum on British membership of the EU. Certainly for those of us who want to see an open, progressive European Union, a union based on the rule of law and human rights, diverse and inclusive, a union with solidarity between constituent nations and between their citizens, offering us a future for our children as good as the one our parents fought to build for us, and harnessing the energy and talent and strength of 500 million people to work for a better world for all of us. For those of us who want to see that kind of European Union, I think what we see at the moment can be quite hard to swallow. 
Take the way that Greece has been treated over its debts. And of course, there was responsibility on both sides, there always is. But the humiliation of that nation, the bullying of a democratically elected government, I think was deeply troubling. It rekindles the fears of the left in the 1960s and 70s that the European economic community, as it was then, would prove to be nothing more than a rich man's club, a way for the bosses to exploit the workers and prevent the creation of a socialist state. A few on the left have even talked about leaving the EU in the hope of building a fairer society outside. And I have to say that this idea, I think, is perhaps hearts talking more than minds. I see no evidence that the British people are currently held back from fulfilling a more progressive political and social agenda by the European Union, quite the opposite. But in any case, it conflates the two great challenges I think we face in Europe. The first is political. The Council of Ministers, representing the 28 member states, is the prime source of power in the EU. It currently has a majority of right-wing members, and consequently the policies of the Council and of the Union lean to the right. And if we want to change that, then we have to work with like-minded parties across Europe to elect progressive parties and so change the direction of the Union. But just because now, in 2016, we have the wrong leaders, it doesn't mean that we should abolish the institution any more than we should give up on our own parliamentary democracy just because we currently have a reactionary conservative government in office. You know, in the same way, I'm immensely frustrated by the failings of the United Nations. I disagree with its policies on a whole range of issues, from its war on drugs to its support for globalization. But do I think that Britain should leave the UN? Well, of course not. But beyond the current policies of the EU lies a deeper truth, that we need to work with our partners in Europe to deal with issues of common concern. Thousands of issues, some large, some small, covering everything from climate change and refugees to transport infrastructure and the licensing of medicines. And the only institution through which we can do that effectively is the European Union. So how is it that we're about to hold this referendum? Well, that takes us to the second great challenge we face in Europe how to make it more relevant to people once more, not just in Britain, but across the continent. Because we in Britain, I think, are at one extreme when it comes to alienation from European politics, but we're also, I think, part of a trend. Confidence in the EU has fallen among the people of all of its member states. All too often, it's not seen as being on their side. What was once an institution with an idealistic and inspiring mission is often seen as interfering or irrelevant or dominated by vested interests. And just as the collapse in trust in Parliament here in Britain is on one level justified and on the other is deeply damaging for democracy, so too in Europe. So we must pursue steadfastly two objectives at the same time, building momentum for progressive reforms on the one hand while simultaneously defending the principle of the EU on the other, that is a considerable challenge that we now face in the coming referendum. And as we consider that referendum, I think it feels right to start by reflecting a little further on, on how we got here. Above all, the process is turning out in some ways to be somewhat of a, a distraction from some pretty serious issues that our country faces. Uh, climate change, the war in Syria, the refugee crisis, the future of the NHS, the dismantling of our welfare state. In my own constituency in Brighton, 
The terms of our membership of the European Union is for many simply not an issue, certainly not when compared to health or housing or social services. And the connection between the future of those sectors and our membership of the EU is seldom made. And the same is true across the country. When people are polled about the major issues facing Britain today, Europe is still behind poverty, housing and education. And that despite all the media coverage about the EU referendum in recent weeks, creating somewhat of a sense of, of crisis. Now, if you ask people if they want a referendum on Europe, many will say they do. And in a way, that's natural. If there are decisions to be made, wouldn't we all want to have our say? But if they had the chance, people would like referenda on a whole range of things, whether or not to replace Trident, bringing the railways back into public ownership, even a return to capital punishment. And yet we're not having a referendum on any of those issues, only Europe. So we, when we reflect on the, on, on the reason for that distinction, I think the easy answer is that it's all down to the fundamental fault lines on Europe in the Conservative Party and David Cameron's inability to manage them. In other words, we've been pushed into this referendum by a cadre of political extremists on the right of British politics for whom our country's membership of the EU is an all-absorbing obsession. That's the easy answer because it's true, but it's not the whole story. Because in a sense, it's also right that we should have a say over our membership of an institution that has such a significant influence over all of our lives. And whatever the short-term self-interested reasons for the government promising this particular referendum, there's still a lot of good that could and should flow from it. And that includes the opportunity to turn the dire political disengagement with the EU into a genuinely popular and grassroots debate in villages and towns and cities right across the UK and across Europe, thinking about what it means to our lives, just as happened with the Scottish referendum. As I said, the British people have fallen out of love with the European Union, and they or we have done that for many reasons. But at the root of it is perhaps the way in which the EU has drifted away from its founding principles, and it's time to put that right. And we can see that by looking back to the last referendum on Europe in 1975. Then, two-thirds of British people voted to stay in, and only a third voted to leave. And let's kill the myth that they didn't know what they were voting for in 1975. The treaty had the same terms and conditions as now. It spoke of an ever-closer union. It included qualified majority voting and the four freedoms of movement, including granting, granting the right for any citizen of the EU to work in any other country. And it was absolutely clear that this was to be a, a European Union that would have a European court to ensure that European laws to which we'd all signed up were actually followed in practice by everyone, including us. So all of that was absolutely out there back in 1975. And the debate at that time was pretty frank and honest. If you read the speeches in Hansard, you'll see endless references to sovereignty and the primacy of European law. So what's changed since then? Well, I think part of it is down to 40 years of biased and often fairly hysterical coverage in the media and of politicians conveniently seeking to push the blame for any unpopular decisions onto Brussels. But there's also, I think, a need to restate what Europe is for, to return to those founding principles. First and foremost of those principles, I think, is peace. The European Union was founded to make war in Europe unthinkable, and it's worked. We've grown up and grown old within a Europe that has enjoyed the longest period of peace since the time of the Roman Empire. The risk is that we take that huge achievement for granted. 
The EU is not an abstract project born of idle philosophizing in continental think tanks. The imperative to share sovereignty in Europe and so ensure that economic competition does not again spill over into conflict was built on the blood and bones of Europeans killed in the disastrous first half of the 20th century. The EU is built on the mistakes of Europeans. It's a pragmatic response to our failure to manage the disruptive forces of nationalism and industrialization. And the majority of the world will go through a similar transformation in the coming decades. And so Europe offers a salutary lesson to them of the cost of failure and a practical model of how cooperation can bring peace and mutual benefit between even the most historic of enemies. And we need Europe now to be united more than ever before. Across our continent, we face the strains of unemployment, poverty, inequality, and political and social alienation. We have threats from terrorism, from the effects of conflict in Syria and elsewhere. And we need to find ways to live within our environmental limits without the overconsumption of precious finite resources. Now, the leaders of Europe can hardly be said to have risen to these challenges with any great imagination or effect. The EU should and could deal with migration better, but this is not the fault of too much Europe, but of too little cooperation. And it's not a problem that could be solved by NATO. NATO is a vital instrument for deterring aggression from hostile countries, but it is incapable of building peace and preventing instability. And this crisis is changing Europe. If we don't tackle the causes of migration, as well as the symptoms, we risk seeing a continued rise in populist and xenophobic political forces across Europe. Forces that would undo the gains of the past 70 years, which have made the EU a global beacon of human rights, democracy and tolerance. And consider for a moment the alternative. Nation states working solely for their own self-interest. Politicians blaming neighboring states or their own minorities for their national woes. Now, of course, we have plenty of national rivalries of discrimination and scapegoating already. From the humiliation of Greece to the abject spectacle of refugees being chased from country to country, we have plenty of examples of a lack of community spirit. But at least we have a framework for managing these tensions. And more importantly, we have a competing vision, a more positive vision, in which nation states collaborate within the EU to solve their shared problems. The success of the European Union, I would argue, is the cornerstone of our own national security. And if we leave, we're putting it at risk. Europe is not historically a very peaceful place. I think it would be sheer folly to think that armed conflict cannot return. It must have seemed just as unlikely during the Edwardian years. And yet we are but a few short months away from the centenary of the Battle of the Somme where hundreds of thousands of lives were squandered in Flanders. In the same way, we cannot ignore the dangers of a return to totalitarianism and fascism in Europe. Our first line of defense is the rule of law and the recognition of fundamental human rights. It is in our national interest to promote this throughout Europe as well as throughout the rest of the world. We cannot know what dangers lie ahead, but we can be sure that a strong and stable European Union with Britain as an active and positive participant provides the surest guarantee of our national security. Now, the mechanisms adopted by the founders of the European Union to bring about peace was a simple one. The more that the nations of Europe traded together, worked together and lived together, the more that conflict would become unthinkable. And by dismantling the barriers within Europe, the more the economies of each nation would thrive, so helping to eradicate poverty and unemployment, the breeding ground of totalitarianism. 
And so we have the four freedoms of movement within the European Union. These mean that you or I or any British citizen has the right to live and work anywhere in the European Union, to provide goods and services on equal terms with everyone else, and if you're lucky enough to have any capital, to move that as well. Now that is a wonderful gift, one that millions of us benefit from. British students broadening their horizons as they study in Munich or Warsaw. British workers enjoying a different culture in Copenhagen or Barcelona. British pensioners retiring to the sunshine of Spain or Cyprus. And it's hardly surprising if our fellow European citizens come here to enjoy those same freedoms too. They've been coming for years. But not, let's be honest, so that they can enjoy the incredible largesse of Britain's welfare system under Ian Duncan Smith. They come because Britain, despite the views expressed in certain national newspapers, is a welcoming and open country. It has an amazing culture. And above all, perhaps they come here because of the chance to learn English, the international language of choice. In a way, the UK is like an enormous language school, and do we really want to close that down? In the year when we're celebrating the life of William Shakespeare, reflecting on the contribution that English makes to our position in the world, our influence, the promotion of our values, to close that down would be an extraordinary move. Now, of course, when people move from one place to another, it can cause pressure on public services. That's true whether they're moving from Leicester to Luton just as much as from Krakow to Coventry. That's not to say that the free movement of people has always functioned smoothly. Community cohesion can become strained, especially when change happens quickly and especially when the government is cutting to the bone budgets for schools, public services and affordable housing. Some employers are happy to undercut wages and pay less to migrant workers. But that's not a reason to criticize workers who are understandably worried about their jobs. When that happens, it's usually because of unscrupulous employers or agencies who illegally pay less than the minimum wage or place migrant workers in tied housing deducted from their wages or cut corners on health and safety knowing they're unlikely to complain. But these are things that are entirely in the hands of our own government to legislate against, to inspect and enforce. And it's time that they did more. And I'd argue that our role as progressives is to expose and undermine the poisonous and divisive anti-immigration rhetoric of UKIP. Their warped myth-making on migration won't be beaten by winning this referendum alone. It will be beaten when politicians are brave enough to stand up to the myths and lies they spread and promote fair, alternative solutions to genuine concerns. And because of the economic benefits that EU citizens from other member states bring with them when they come to this country, we ought to have plenty of resources to direct to where they're most needed, schools, health centers, housing, and so on. More also needs to be done to ensure that those areas under greatest pre pressure retain more of the financial benefits themselves. Some have talked of this as a migration dividend. And we need a serious strategy that ensures migration is more evenly spread across the UK, thus ensuring that free movement can benefit everyone. And of course, the significance of this referendum for those EU nationals living here is profound. Many have been here for decades. They pay billions into the exchequer. They can contribute hugely to the richness of our communities. And yet they're being denied a vote in this referendum. And that's why I think progressives must make a stand for them and campaign alongside them for Britain to remain in the EU. I think no case for the EU is complete without making clear just how much we value the contribution of our fellow Europeans to our country. They are our doctors, our nurses, our shopkeepers, our plumbers, our teachers, our professors, our builders. They, and indeed I refer to maybe some of you here today, you are our friends, our neighbors. 
and failing to make clear just how much we value you, you bringing, being, being part of our national story would be a dereliction of our duty as progressives. So to facilitate the integration of people who move, we need investment in public services. Sadly, however, we have a, a government that doesn't seem to believe very much in public services. In fact, which positively delights in the perceived failings of our services so that they can use underfunding and mismanagement as an excuse for privatisation. We also have a government that likes to run all its services from Whitehall rather than giving local authorities or other public bodies the freedom to make their own decisions about priorities. And the result is that services don't keep pace with need. But that's not the fault of the European Union. It's something we can and should put right at the next election. And I'm referring, of course, to the general election because that's still where power lies in Britain. Whether it's the economy or taxation or defence or education or health or crime or housing... The decisions are taken by the British government and parliament. Nor is the jackboot of the European Commission quite the threat to our national way of life that you might think from glancing through the pages of the Daily Express. We still drink our pints of beer, we eat our milky chocolate, road signs are still in miles, not kilometres. Now, of course, being in the European Union does put some constraints on the decisions that we take as a country. And that's because we've agreed to stick to a set of rules, rules that we want other countries to follow as well. And we've agreed that when there are disputes, there should be a single court, free from national control, to decide and settle those disputes, and with the power to enforce the rules. There's nothing sinister or surprising about that. That's what we signed up to in 1973. And in 1975, the British people voted two to one to continue with that obligation. We in Britain are usually the first to complain if others flout the rules, so we can't pick and choose, or you have anarchy. Now, when this was debated in 1975, the most compelling answer, I think, came from Edward Heath. Sovereignty, he argued, was something for Parliament to use wisely on behalf of the British people. And if that meant sharing sovereignty with other countries for the benefit of Britain, then that was the right thing to do. And, of course, it was always in the power of Parliament, and it is, to take back that sovereignty. So, in a way, this debate about sovereignty, I think, is a, is a bit of a distraction. Of course, Britain was and will always remain a sovereign state because we have and always will have the right to leave. To quote Margaret Thatcher, not something I do every day, this was how she summed up the question of sovereignty during the last referendum. She said, we could not be considering taking the country out of the community unless Parliament were still sovereign. Now, those words are every bit as true today as they were when she was campaigning to stay in Europe. So why, when it comes to Europe, is there this endless talk of sovereignty? I think it's significant that we don't hear so much about it when it comes to NATO or the United Nations or the World Trade Organization and a host of other international bodies. Yet arguably, membership of NATO, which overrides Britain's sovereignty about whether to go to war or not, is a far greater commitment than anything to do with the EU. And I have to say, it's one of the ironies of the current debate that the same people who cry the loudest about national self-determination are the same ones who are also embracing the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership Treaty, which constitutes a massive surrender of sovereignty with none of the safeguards built in as there are in the European Union treaties. And so this question of sovereignty, I think, also highlights the absurdity of the position of those campaigning to leave the EU. Essentially, they want the benefits of access to the EU single market, but without having to abide by the rules, the freedoms, and the responsibilities that go with it. But the truth is, to sell into the EU, you need to follow the rules. The only difference is, if you're also a member of the EU, you get to help to write those rules too. 
And so Norway and Switzerland and other countries outside the EU can't pick and choose which rules to follow. And to suggest that the UK could do that, I think, is simply misleading. To sell into the EU, you also need to make a financial contribution. Norway and Switzerland both do that. Hundreds of millions of euros a year go to help fund roads in Romania and broadband in Cornwall. So to suggest the UK would save on its net contributions by leaving the EU is also misleading. And I think that's why the Leave campaign is so careful never to explain what would actually happen if we did leave. What kind of relationship would we end up with? But that has to be a critical question when the time comes for us to cast our votes. Now, some leavers suggest that we can, in effect, stay within the European economic area. But that would mean continuing to follow the EU rules and contribute to the EU budget. The only change would be, as I say, that we would give up the right to influence those rules. Others say we could become entirely independent of the EU and instead trade with the rest of the world. They talk a lot about the emerging markets of the Far East and the success of Singapore. But that would mean turning our backs on our nearest neighbours and trying to forge new economic and political relationships with countries half a world away. And make no mistake, those relationships, if we were able to create them, would come themselves with obligations and expectations. China is the dominant economy in the Far East. We've already seen how, when China opens up for business, it expects a lot in return. Those who want us to leave the EU and forge new relationships with the Far East need to be open about this. What new obligations, what new loss of sovereignty even, would that bring? Will leaving the EU and hitching our wagon to communist China make Britain safer or richer or more independent? So at the very least, there is a lack of collective vision of what the future would hold for Britain outside the EU. It means we have Boris Johnson arguing that we should vote to leave so that we can have a better deal for staying in. A truly inane position if ever I heard one. We also have many within the Leave campaign who have an agenda of their own, let's make no mistake. They want to leave not on principle or for the good of the country, but rather so they can strip their fellow citizens of the many fundamental rights that membership of the European Union gives them. Do you think that the industrialists and financiers bankrolling the Leave campaign are all signed up to replacing European law with equivalent protection from Westminster? Of course not. They see in the referendum a chance to push Britain firmly back into the past, from the right to time off when you have children, to making sure our beaches are safe from sewage, this is a chance to wipe away decades of progress all in one go. Leaving the EU is a charter for exploitation of our environment and of us as citizens and employees. And that's before we consider the other dangers of leaving the EU. The Good Friday Agreement has brought a level of peace and cooperation to the north of Ireland that would have been unthinkable only a few years ago. It's been successful in large part because of our ever closer relationship with the Republic of Ireland, in turn fostered by our shared membership of the European Union. Yet that relationship and even the Good Friday Accords could be destabilised if we left the EU. And the UK itself might not survive a vote to leave. What was remarkable about the last referendum was that almost every community in Britain voted to stay in. It was a unifying decision. But there's every sign that this time around if some parts of the country vote to leave, others, and above all Scotland, will vote to stay. So it's not alarmist, I think, to talk of the risks involved in this referendum. Those who want us to leave do so all the time. The favoured phrase is the end of a thousand years of British history. Well, if we have a split vote on June the 23rd, then we may well see the end of Great Britain. And that's why the challenge we face in the referendum campaign is not only to win, we must aim to win big.
The pro-European campaign in 1975 won 66% of the vote. Now, we might not repeat that in 2016, but I think we must aim for more than just making it over the finishing line with 51% of the vote. The clearer the victory, the easier it will be to move on from this sterile debate on membership to the real issues of how we can build the kind of Europe that we actually want. We could have so much more influence with our European partners if we ourselves were more positive about what we can achieve together. Not surrendering, as the jingoistic newspapers and politicians would have it, but seeing where we are stronger together and having the confidence to advance and not retreat. Advancing in the confidence that we can find common ground and allies and we can negotiate effectively on behalf of our country. Look at what's already been achieved on environmental policy, an area which, given the cross-border nature of pollution, demonstrates so clearly not only what we gain from our EU membership, but also what we stand to lose. It's difficult to see how we tackle air pollution from coal and cars, marine pollution or climate change by going it alone. The jewel in the crown of environmental protection in the EU and across Europe are the nature directives. They are underpinned by a principle that's more important today than ever, the need for a level playing field across Europe to prevent a so-called race to the bottom, where member states and multinational corporations seek to gain competitive, competitive advantage by destroying the natural environment. On climate change, much as the Paris Climate Agreement doesn't go far enough, if you listen to representatives from the small island states, some of the poorest countries with the most to lose from climate change, they'll tell you that working with the EU was absolutely key to getting the crucial 1.5 degree climate goal into that final agreement. EU-level action also provides a vital space for more radical solutions to develop and become mainstream, whilst they're still on the periphery here in the UK. The circular economy package, for example, has the potential to be truly groundbreaking by driving a revolution in both consumption and production. And we urgently need to confront the unsustainability of our entire political and economic system, which is pursuing short-term GDP growth above all else. Now, our best chance of making the shift to prioritizing quality of economic activity rather than quantity is to do so in conjunction with other EU countries. And we shouldn't be afraid to see areas where the EU could do more. Instead of surrendering to the destructive forces of untamed globalization, we should see the EU as a vital tool for ensuring that the international econ economy is not our master but our servant. Now, that isn't Brussels interfering in our national life. It's about forging relationships with other countries to ensure that governments and peoples take the decision, not international investors and lobbyists. And if Brussels is the best forum for that, then so be it. For those who want to leave, who believe we can't get the deals we want from the EU, let me suggest that they try and recover a bit of British courage, that they have a bit more faith in British values, that they look a bit more closely at British history. I'm not one for national tub-thumping, but Britain has got something unique to offer to the rest of Europe, just as we have a lot to gain from each and every other member state. And we shouldn't be afraid to make the most of that. And that doesn't mean signing up to a United Nations, a United States of Europe, sorry. It means using the tried and tested structures of the European Union to allow the countries of Europe to work more closely together on areas where that brings mutual advantage. And that brings me to the final principle at the heart of the European Union, one which seems particularly to stick in the throats of those who've agitated for so long to leave. Ever closer union. 
three small words. If you look at the actual treaties, Ever Closer Union is actually about people, not political institutions or governments. An Ever Closer Union is explicitly also about subsidiarity, making decisions as locally as is sensible. If you read the actual text, it's very clearly not about centralizing power in Brussels. So let me quote. It says, the process of creating an ever closer union among the peoples of Europe in which decisions are taken as openly as possible and as closely as possible to the citizen. Now, at the risk of becoming philosophical, I think this idea is about a recognition that the closer we are as a people and as societies and nations, the better. And yet, paradoxically, there will always remain we will always remain different, and so we'll never reach a state of complete union. It's a never-ending journey in which we grow closer, yet retain our essential qualities, a union rooted in diversity. It is, I think, a rather beautiful idea, particularly in the context of a Europe lying in ruins in 1945. It is, perhaps, the kind of thing that a Gandhi or a Mandela might have said, and the fact that it came from some apparently dull men in, dull men in suits doesn't mean it loses its radical force. But if Britain opts out of this aspiration towards an ever closer union, it will make no practical difference, but it will perhaps cement in people's minds the idea that the EU is no more or less than a trading agreement, a way of helping individuals and corporations make money with some additional rules on social and environmental impacts to keep people like me quiet. And if that's how it's seen, then it's our fault we who believe that the EU can be so much more than this. We have failed to articulate a vision for Europe that is positive and critically is about the things that matter most to people. And let me take just one example of this. Imagine for a moment that you're a citizen of the state of Texas. And imagine too that the United States did not have the right of freedom of movement. Think of the limits that that would impose on your life. Your employer might have factories or offers offices in other states, but you wouldn't have the right to go and work there. Your children couldn't think of studying at a university elsewhere in the US, say at Yale or Harvard, or moving to San Francisco to broaden their minds or to Hollywood to break into movies. You couldn't even retire to Florida. In reality, as a Texan, you have all these rights right now in the United States, and yet you could hardly describe Texans as lacking in independence and self-confidence. So let's think about the kind of vision that could rekindle people's enthusiasm for Europe to help them see that it is more than a remote trading block, one in which Europe enhances people's lives, offers freedoms to them and to their children. The British people haven't closed the door on Europe. There's even some openness to greater involvement from Europe when that makes sense. For example, in a recent survey, 70% of people in Britain thought that the EU had a role to play in guaranteeing minimum standards in social protection. So this then is the task of those of us who believe in progressive politics. We have to reimagine the European Union, not just in terms of institutional reforms, the increases in democracy and transparency and account accountability, although that matters, but in terms of what it can do to help people live better lives. And it's a task we've hardly started, which is why the referendum is such a chance for progressive politics. We have the chance to talk about Europe as it could be, a leader in pioneering attempts to live more lightly on the planet in ways that don't cost the earth. Post-Paris, Europe is uniquely placed to be a pathfinder for the transition to sustainable development, taking on a role as a leader and facilitator of a global response. Not because Europe is uniquely enlightened, but because Europe has learnt the hard lessons from bloody conflict on the need to put limits on power and gain the benefits of pooling sovereignty. 
investing in sustainable local economies and renewable energy and energy efficiency that provide millions of decent long-term jobs right across the EU, rather than competing to lure multinationals with inward investment grants. Prioritizing the art of peace building, deploying the soft power that has been the hallmark of building the union. Protecting all employees in Europe from unfair practices such as zero-hour contracts so that bad practices in one country don't become an excuse to drive down standards elsewhere. A minimum wage right across the EU, not the same in every country, of course, but a floor of standards so that basic needs can be met right across the continent. And that's before we even get to talk about the flourishing of arts and culture right across this continent. The referendum debate must be more than an arid debate about how much we pay in and how much we get out. It's got to be more than a transactional calculation. This must be the time when we reignite people's belief that Europe can be a force for good once more, in the world and in their own lives. Now, of course, we have to rebut the myths and the scaremongering. And we have to spend time challenging the idea that we will thrive as a country if if we go it alone. But we shouldn't base our arguments for staying in Europe on fear of the outside. It's got to be a positive statement of the value for us all of being part of Europe. Now, a week or so ago, I was talking to a friend of mine about the referendum, and he said this, I'm British, but I'm also a citizen of Europe. I'm still not sure what that means, but I don't want it taken away from me or my children. And I think setting out what that really means is our challenge in this referendum. Thank you. Thank you very much. We've got a good uh, period of time for questions and discussion. So I'll I'll just start by taking individuals and we'll we'll see how we go. Um, Can I just see if there's anyone who would indicate? um, I think uh, this gentleman with the um, mauve sweater. Just before you speak, could I ask everyone who speaks to say who they are and where they're from, please? And also wait for the microphone. Uh, Hi. Um, My name is Phil Hall. I was a student here many decades ago when uh, the LSC was, seemed to be in revolt all the time, um, and much has changed. Uh, what I would like to ask Caroline, thank you for the talk, is does your vision of uh, the EU include the uh, TTIP negotiations by which, um, as, as I understand it, a single market is being aimed for and which um, would open up privatisation of education, health service and so on to uh, private uh, companies from America as as well as from Europe and that uh, governments could be sued if they did not oblige in this respect. Well, I am glad you asked that question because it's a question that many people put because if you're looking at some of the current policies of the EU, TTIP kind of encompasses, if you like, some of the, the absolute worst of what we're talking about. But do you know what... The key person who is the biggest and loudest cheerleader for TTIP is David Cameron. And the idea that if we came out of the EU that we would suddenly have a kind, cuddly, friendly trade policy, I think is a fantasy. So we also need to look at the fact that already in bilateral investment treaties, this investor-state dispute settlement mechanism, that's the bit that basically allows corporates, uh, corporations to sue democratically elected governments, that is already in 
uh, a number of these um, bilaterally negotiated investment treaties that Britain is involved in and certainly would be more in the future. So to my mind, I'm absolutely opposed to TTIP, but I think our best chance of opposing it is by making common cause with the for example, three million people across the EU who've already signed uh, a petition to try to slow it down. It's by lobbying our MEPs over which we have more control, arguably, than our, our MPs. At least they are elected proportionally. I think we have a better chance of defeating TTIP in Europe by, than by thinking that if we withdraw from the EU, we'll be able to fight those very same principles um, in Britain on our own. So I completely agree with you that TTIP uh, represents the, the worst, if you like, of, of, of current policymaking. But that is not least because, as I said earlier, the majority of governments in the EU right now are right-wing, and not least because David Cameron is one of the strongest champions for this kind of relationship. The EU, I think, provides us the greatest protection against it. Um, okay. Um, can we have uh, this uh, man with the blue sweater, please? Hi, my name's Kieran. I'm from the Tar Hamlet's Green Party. Um, I was just wondering, as the most of the UK media are enormously Eurosceptic to the point of hysteria, wh what ways do you think is going to be uh, most important to connect with people who aren't maybe uh, like very focused on the minutiae of the European uh, debate? How, how are you going to break through to people when every, every newspaper shop has like 8 out of 10 headlines saying, yeah. EU mad? Yeah. It's a very good question. I think we can try and learn something from the Scottish experience, although that was obviously a, 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 different, a, a different debate and you didn't have the hostility from the media in that way. But what they managed to do in Scotland was to make the debate about independence something much broader than a constitutional question. It became something to do with the identity of people as Scots. And whichever side of the debate you were on, it was something that people felt fairly viscerally and got very engaged in, you know, in towns and cities and communities all around the, the country. That's, that's our challenge. How do we make this that same kind? kind of, of, of issue. And I think partly it's got to be around um, those kinds of conversations. So on the, um, those of us who are sort of campaigning to stay in the EU are looking to see what ways we can um, you know, get musicians involved, go on a, a, a tour of, of the UK and, and give as many talks as possible and, and just talk to as many people as possible in as many different um, environments as possible. Social media, of course, is going to be vital, particularly for young people, because what we know about young people is that they're far more likely to be in favor of staying in the EU, and yet they're much less likely to vote. And so one of the challenges we have is, is how you mobilize young people to get out. And I think um, it's no secret that I have some concerns about the, um, uh, the, the current Stronger In campaign in the sense that I think it's doing a very good job of talking to its target audience, which is the people in the middle who've yet to make up their mind one way or another, but it certainly isn't talking particularly to young people. It's not creating the kind of material that will be easily shared on Facebook and social media and so forth. So I think there's a whole set of work there to be done to try to, to get around the fact that, uh, as you say, unfortunately in this country, we have a, a, a very narrow set of, of, of media positions, which I don't doubt is, is, a, is a serious problem that we need to try and face. Okay, um, this uh, woman with the glasses, please. Um, hi, I'm Katie. Um, I actually work in political polling. But um, related to your point, I was just wondering, how much of a hindrance is David Cameron to the um, Remain campaign? <laughs> 
I mean, it, it, it's, it's about segmenting your audiences, isn't it? Um, I mean, because for some people, it's, it's, it's wonderful that he's heading up the campaign, and, and it means that it has a profile, and, and the position of staying in gets a much louder amplification because the Prime Minister is espousing that position. So in one level, of course, it's a, it's a good thing that he is. But certainly for the group of people I was just talking about, young people, millennials, and so forth, it is not a good thing. They are not about to be sharing material with David Cameron's face on it. So I think we need to get um, a more diverse set of communication strategies working so that we can pull people together. Because to my mind, it doesn't matter. In fact, in many ways, it's a strength that there are lots of different reasons for wanting to stay in, in the EU. If it's a referendum situation, you want to maximize as many different people to, to, to vote yes for whatever their reasons are. And so the fact that he's talking to you know, a, a, a sizable group of people is, is a good thing, but it means that we also need to make sure that that message doesn't undermine our set of messages, uh, and we also need to make sure that there's resource going into making sure that those other messages are getting out there too. Yes, I'm going to come to the people up there in a minute, but can we have this gentleman in the black first of all, please? Thank you, Nico Heller. Um, Jeremy Corbyn recently said that he wasn't going to share a platform with David Cameron. Um, and Boris Johnson said that he wasn't going to share a platform with Nigel Farage. Um, so it, to me, it looks as if you've got two campaigns on each side. Do we have a fifth campaign with the Green Party, or are you going to join everybody's platform? <laughs> um, I think, broadly speaking, uh, the Greens just want to get the message across. I mean, I'm a board member of Stronger In, which was a bit controversial, but the reason that I wanted to take that position was precisely to try to influence them. They are going to be the biggest voice on the yes side in this referendum. And it seems to me that, that to give up the opportunity to be able to get your views heard and, and to some extent perhaps have some um, influence over, over the kinds of messaging and so forth would be, would be a wasted opportunity. So... To, to my mind, I think we need to get that message across. And to be honest, for the Greens, if I were sitting on a platform with David Cameron, I don't think many people would assume that we were actually sharing the same views. I think it's fairly clear that we would not be. Okay. Um, so I've got uh, a good number of gentlemen, um, and I'll take that man in the blue, um, but everyone else should feel free to ask questions as well. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, Caroline. My name is Michael Wells. I'm a translator. I used to work for the EU, and we were actually in the same room about 12 years ago when Peter Mandelson was being confirmed as commissioner, and I unfortunately nearly sat next to Nigel Farage. Um, I have a couple of, um, not exactly questions, but I wonder if you could comment. I'm, I also left, uh, left the EU, although I'm supportive of it, but in partial disgust at the dysfunctional, the, the institutional um, dysfunction there. Um, and I wondered, well, I'll ask my first question, the, the, my second question is related to that, but the first question, well, I was very dismayed that the previous coalition government commissioned the Balance of Competence Review, which was task with seeing what legislation is initiated in Brussels and what legislation in the UK. And the British civil servants, which is pretty good, um, said in that report basically that the balance was about right and the previous coalition government just sat on it and didn't do anything about it. And um, I wonder whether there's sort of mileage in that for the, the referendum debate. The, my second question is about perhaps you could comment on your <coughs> personal journey, having been an MEP, um, but as you mentioned in your, um, your talk, that in fact the real power is still with national governments and hopefully with national parliaments. Um, 
is it the case that you're, you being an MP, you actually have far more leverage over all kinds of issues and that one of the problems with the European Parliament is that MEPs are, in, in fact, ineffective and ineffectual? Um, and then just last moment, if I may ask, but this is maybe, I saw online, and I don't know if it's true, that you were, your name was um, mentioned with the, the founding of the DM movement with Yanis Varoufakis' movement. And I wonder if you think that's a, sort of a, a positive um, uh, an idea for the future. Hopefully we stay in, and is, that, is there something to be built on there? Thank you. <clears throat> right, I shall try to answer those, and um, I'll do them in reverse order, because that's kind of easier for my memory. So, Yanis um, Varoufakis, uh, a few weeks ago, launched um, an initiative called DM25, which stands for Democracy in Europe um, uh, by 2025, and uh, I was there as part of that launch. And what excites me about that is that... Um, it is a pan-European movement for reform. So it's looking at the way in which institutionally the European institutions need to become much more democratic, accountable, transparent, and so forth. Um, it's making some very practical suggestions about how you could do it. And what I like about it is that some of the things you could just do tomorrow, you could live stream council meetings, you could release the documents for TTIP, you could do a number of things if you had the political will to do it fairly quickly. And then it goes on to some you know, things in the, in the medium term and longer term about how you would change some of the powers so you'd give the European Parliament more powers than it has right now. So I liked it because it was a very practical document, but also because there's that sense that it isn't just a few of us in the UK saying we want to reform the way the EU works. That's not very compelling. But when we can demonstrate we are part of a movement that has got chapters in Madrid, in Rome, in Athens, in Berlin, in Paris, then that becomes something quite exciting. And he is deeply committed to doing this. You know, he's, this is his full-time uh, job right now, is going around mobilizing people around this. And we had a, a, you know, an absolutely packed meeting, uh, both when he launched this and actually here in the LSE a few uh, weeks ago when he came to talk about it then. So to my mind, that is a, is a positive contribution to the, uh, to the debate. Um, MEPs, you just slurred by calling ineffective and, uh, and ineffectual, I think. Um, I, <clears throat> with MEPs, I think actually we're in a funny situation because I think they actually have more power than most people think they have, albeit not as much power as they should have. So on, on, a, on a range of issues, and the environment is, is a key one, <clears throat> members of the European Parliament are genuinely co-legislators with the Council of Ministers, so in that case with the, you know, the, the Environment Minister. Um, MEPs have a real role to play. Their amendments carry real weight, and if they get through the Parliament, then the Council has to find some way of negotiating with them to find a compromise before a, a piece of environmental legislation that, say, can go through. So on one hand, the MEPs have um, uh, more power than many people think, but on the other hand, there are other areas, um, trade, for example, where they have far fewer powers. They can say yes or no to TTIP, for example, but they can't... Um, amend it or modify it or, 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 or have any kind of nuanced uh, position on it. Um, I want to see a position where MEPs do have real powers across the board. Um, and I also want to see, this comes back to the question about the media, I was really struck when I was a member of the European Parliament how, how little coverage there ever was about what the European Parliament was doing. It just it simply isn't taken seriously at all in this country. Whereas there will be times you know, when you go into a news agency in Brussels where the front pages of papers in France and Germany would have, and Belgium, would have um, stories about what the European Parliament had just done. So there's a much greater knowledge. It was less of a weird beast. It was much more part of the kind of governance architecture for many other countries. And I think we have a real problem in the sense that we still think of Europe being over there 
you know, the number of times people say, you know, have you been to Europe? And you have to say, you are in Europe, thank you. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just it's kind of a mindset that we have because of the water around us, I dare say. But um, I, I think that if we had greater understanding of what MEPs did, then there might just be a little bit more um, respect for the work that they uh, do as well. You asked me if my own position had changed over time. I think... I think I've become um, more passionately positive about the EU uh, when I'm not a member of the European Parliament. Um, and that's because, you know, of course some of the processes are deeply bureaucratic and cumbersome and time-consuming. Um, but on the other hand, you know, when you stand back and you look at it, I also think there is something actually pretty noble about that endeavour of trying to find solutions together through debate and discussion rather than through, you know, bullets and bombs, which wasn't that long ago. So um, I, I, I think that um, we, we, we risk the undervaluing of what the, what the EU uh, does, and I would love a way for people to know more about it. And I can't remember what your actual first question... Have I answered your first Balance of competences. Yes, it would be really helpful to have the release of that document, and it's... Uh, because, as you say, it precisely... Okay, they need to be talking about it then. But yes, to, to, to make some... some um, uh, yes, it's very odd that they haven't, given that essentially what it says was that this is not some kind of coup being undertaken by, by Brussels, that the, that, that the balance of competences is, is about right, because the principle of subsidiarity does actually more or less work uh, within the European institutions. Okay. Um, can I have this uh, woman here, but just wait for the microphone and don't forget to say who you are and where you're from. Um, my name's Ellen. I'm a third-year student at LSE. Um, I wanted to ask about the ECJ. Speak a little bit louder. Sorry. Um, I'm Ellen. I'm a third-year student. Uh, I want to ask about the ECJ. Um, you were saying about we want to be in a Europe that we want to build with the sort of bottom-line standard of um, the minimum wage and environmental protections and so on. Um, the, problem, the potential issue with the ECJ is that it tends to make decisions which lower regulations, um, particularly with economic policy, um, and I was wondering if you see any opportunity in the future, um, if we do stay in the EU, which I hope we do, to influence the ECJ in any way or in some way protect this bottom standard of regulation. And I think what, in a sense, the ECJ is, is reflecting um, the fact that in the EU as a whole, unfortunately, it is, it is the economic interests that tend to win out whenever there's a battle between sustainability interests, let's say, on the one hand, or indeed social protections on the one hand, and the interests of international competition and being the meanest, leanest competition we can possibly be. And what I kind of felt that I saw in, in, in the um, European Union when, when I was a member of the Parliament there for, for 10 years was, was that battle being played out you know, regularly. Um, and you're right that there are cases, you know, for example, when it came to um, the single market, the fact that you had to have bottles a certain shape and size, the famous case, you know, that that, that, that meant that... Um, certain countries couldn't then have their um, return, bottle return recycling system because uh, they didn't all come in the right shapes and sizes which, because it had been seen to be a, a barrier to, to, to the single market. So I think if you look at, for example, the kinds of, of, of um, changes that, that Yanis Varoufakis would send, set out in, in DM, one of his more longer-term changes would be to try and change the, the supremacy of the single market above all else. Because I think one of the reasons that for so many people the EU feels such a kind of a distant and, and abstract entity is because the economic 
measures that were used so effectively in the very early years of its establishment to, to build the European Union have, have almost become an end in themselves, and people only think about economism, the single market, as, as being the purpose of the EU. And, you know, I think that's part of the challenge that we have to be talking about all of the other stuff that the EU does. And, and certainly if we were to look at the real threats facing the EU today, you could certainly say that, for example, climate change and, and, and environmental problems are actually a far more real threat right now than anything else, and therefore there's a very good argument for being able to shift that balance of priorities within the European institutions themselves, which I think would then feed through to the ECJ. So I don't uh, dispute the, the observation that you're making that that is a problem at the moment, but I think it would be part of the overall reforms that we want to see. Great. Um, this uh, man here with the glasses... Hello, uh, Joseph Harmer. I'm the chair of London Young Labour. Oh, London Young, Young, London Young Green, sorry. Freudian, <laughs> Freud, Freudian slip there. Um, He's a spy. He's a spy. <laughs> but um, on a slightly less ridiculous note, uh, I, really liked, um, the, I would really like to see a more reformed and democratic and progressive European Union. But what I can't see is any way to actually practically deliver that through the structures of the European Union as it exists. And considering the general lack of political will to create that kind of thing um, in the current political climate, how on a practical level can we actually build the European Union we want to see? Well, that's a, a very good question, whoever you are, whether you're young, young Labour or whatever. Um, I mean, I, I, th I think there are certain trends that we can, we can work with. So, for example, at each treaty renegotiation, at the Lisbon Treaty, for example, the Parliament has been accruing more powers. That is the direction of travel. It's not fast enough, and it's not going as far as we would like. But there is that sense of, of the Parliament, a recognition that the Parliament needs to be playing a more, a more instrumental role in, in, in the work of the um, EU. I think on things like transparency, I mean, ironically... Um, I think the EU has gone further when it comes to um, ensuring that lobbyists and so forth are more transparent about their operations than we have even in the, in the UK government because, as you'll know, the British government basically changed that lobbying and transparency act into something that, that really turned it on its head and, and, and doesn't really tell us very much about transparency of lobbying. I think when it comes to controlling capital, you can think of things like the Tobin tax or the um, regulations that we have now on bankers' bonuses. So the EU is taking those actions. There, there, there is, there, there is um, something to work with. It's not as if the whole, the whole edifice is, 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 is against us on this. And I think to answer your question practically, our best hope of actually changing this stuff is by working with other um, uh, people in other countries so that it isn't something that only is being heard in Britain. And so, you know, there really are strong voices in places like Spain with Podemos or Syriza in Greece. Interestingly, you know, they don't want to withdraw from the European Union, however badly they've been uh, treated. They, they want to work to, to reform it. And it's not going to be easy, but um, I, I genuinely think that our best chance is to stay in it and work with people across the, 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 the European Union to make the very best we can of it and if we took just one issue you know so let's say live streaming council meetings it's very difficult to argue against that really um, and there's now the petition mechanism so that if you get it sounds a lot but a million signatures but actually if you've divided up between 27 member states it's not so hard um, 
you know, you could really get ahead of steam behind some of that stuff. So I think what it needs is coordinated action and action from the left, because one of my criticisms of the, of the left with, in which I you know, include the Greens, in a sense, is that we haven't been strong enough defenders of the EU till now. We haven't realised what we're at risk of losing till we're now at risk of losing it. Um, and so I think that for all of the difficulties that there are with the, with the EU, we've got to come out there much more strongly and say it is worth fighting for, and, it, and, and we believe that it can be changed, and we're going to work to try and, and make that happen because the surest way of ensuring that it doesn't happen for sure is to turn our backs on it okay um can i have the woman there i don't know why all the people i'm choosing have glasses but it's another (laughs) case of just wait for the microphone Hello, Caroline. I've come up from Brighton, (laughs) my MP, (laughs) to hear what you had to say. (laughs) Not entirely. I've been in London for the day. But um, I wanted to... (laughs) Um, I wanted to say I voted to be in um, the EU, and I want to remain. And I thought you might be encouraged that I've been talking in the local cafes of Patrick, the churches, and we're all talking about the EU. We don't know what we really feel about it, some of us, and I think there's got to be a very strong message, um, you know, promoted um, if we're wanting to stay in. Um, And um, as most of the young people have either been studying or um, uh, at school, I wasn't talking to young people. I think you've got a lot of work to do with some of the older people. Um, um, and you mentioned music, and I think I'd already said to you that um, uh, Nigel Farage appears on this rather witty, um, popular thing that I've been seeing on YouTube with a couple of... Um, they look a bit like little mixes or, you know, <laughs> those sort of characters. I think you've got to come up with your band um, in order to have, you know, the, uh, the uh, David Cameron lot and the um, Corbyn lot and all together and sing. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so we'll feel free to start this performance. No, I, I think I will spare all of you um, uh, my singing. But I, I, I take the point that we've got to use as many different channels and humour we certainly have to use in order to, in order to get a message out there. And I think, I think what you've described in a sense is that a, a lot of people don't yet have the words to express what they feel about the European Union. Um, those people who want to stay in, the people who want to come out have got some very strong words to express. But, but those of us who, who, who on balance want to stay in, I think we've got to help create some of those arguments, or at least to articulate, not create them, but, but to articulate them and share them and, and work out what, what we feel comfortable with. But for me, what I would say, and, and, and I guess this probably might, might not be a word that would go down so well in the cafes of, of Patcham, but, but for me it is about the word solidarity, and I don't know what, how you would translate that into something that perhaps sounds less like you know, marching with red flags, but for me it's about, about working together. When you look at the international... When you look at the challenges we face today, they are the most, most of them have an international dimension, whether that's terrorism or the refugee crisis or the environmental crisis or the economic crisis. And the idea that we're going to be more effective working on those shared challenges on our own, I think is something that a lot of people can kind of intuitively get. You know, the, the idea, if, you're, if, you're, if you've got these big problems to, to deal with, the idea that as, as a single country you're going to be best placed to, to, to address them, I think is for most people, something that seems probably unlikely. And so the more that, that we, 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 we learn some of the right languages around cooperation or solidarity, whatever the language might be, then perhaps we can make some of these arguments a bit simpler because 
you know, the EU for many people is a dry and dusty concept. And, you know, if they bothered to Google it, then they'd find all sorts of things about directives and regulations and commissions and councils. And they get lost in all of the detail. And that will spell the end of this uh, campaign if we're trying to um, win it. So it is going to be about trying to provide some of that, of that more inspirational language, which is about, as I say, the idea that essentially on the shared challenges we face, we're more effective when we work together to try to tackle them. Okay, I'm going to take um, the gentleman uh, there, yes. I can't say that he has glasses because he doesn't have glasses. Um, <laughs> Perhaps he could put some on just for the purposes of the question. Just wave your arm around so they can give you a... Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm Jamal. I'm an undergrad at the school. I was just going to pick a little bit up on the faux aspect of the title. Um, do you not think that the EU debate's um, a distraction in the sense that we've mentioned a lot of issues like, like TTIP, for instance, and the difficulty of the left mobilising? Do you not think that they're, in a, in a basic sense, just much more important issues to mobilise? Um, and I guess it kind of links to this idea of sharing a platform, you know, with David Cameron or whatever. Um, I'd, I'd be quite opposed to the idea that, that having a European level of debate necessarily means solidarity because, I mean, if David Cameron's happy for his own population to turn to food banks, commit suicide, etc., why was he going to be more interested um, in the issues that face the EU as a whole? So would you not say that if the left are to mobilise or, or we're to implement structures that, you know, um, galvanise debate and, and, and gain support... At a, at a more meta level, there, there are broader structures that almost need dissolving in order to to make conditions better for workers, students, etc. But also, there are more specific campaigns, TTIP, the Green Paper, etc., um, around which we should mobilise. Um, yeah, sorry to be pessimistic, but <laughs> I, I'm sort of trying to get to the to the crux of, of of the question that you're you're putting. I mean, if you're saying you know, should we somehow fold our messaging into what David Cameron is saying, then, then, then clearly not. I, I, I'm suggesting that what we need for the broad left, if you like, or progressives or however we want to describe ourselves, is, is, is a, a campaign that is complementary to the campaign that David Cameron is, 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 is heading up, but which is speaking a very different language and, and, and highlighting very different issues. And so for us, I would imagine, most of us in this room, one of the reasons for those of us who are in favour of staying in the EU is because we want to see cooperation between peoples and between different countries. The fact that David Cameron has not demonstrated that with his policies so far, I, I couldn't agree with you more, but I'm, I'm not quite sure... Well, I guess I, just, I didn't just mean to come special. I meant you sort of alluded it to being you know, kind of business interests, but there's no, there's no issue why, why being in or out will change radically the... the I think if we're, to, if we're to control corporate power, if you like, then I think there is a strong argument for staying in to control corporate power because if you're looking at things like tackling tax evasion and tax avoidance, if you're looking at things like the bankers' bonuses or whatever, then it's going to be much more effective to have those rules at European level than to just do it as individual member states because then you have problems of countries threatening to leave or banks threatening to leave and you, know, you have all of that sense of... of, 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 of um, you know, lowest common denominators. Whereas if there's a floor of, of, of regulation, including financial regulation right across the uh, EU, then it's much more easy to hold 
corporations to account because you're talking about a market of 500 million rather than a market of just 70 million. So I would argue that, that on those economic issues, we can make a really strong case for saying that staying inside the EU is the best way to get that kind of financial regulation. But maybe I'm still not quite getting to your... Yeah, so, sorry, yeah. I just, just say that like, having um, a, diff a different different consciousness, different institutions, the prerequisite. Because whereas the EU might give the potential to, to deal with the refugee crisis or you know, economic redistribution or climate change, it doesn't necessarily bring that about unless there's an electoral change. So I guess in those times, it's not better to have a Green Party... It's necessary but not sufficient, isn't it? I mean, yeah, if that's what you're saying, then I agree with you. It's necessary but not sufficient. I mean, you, you, you would want, ideally, to have the right, in inverted commas, government, not the right governments, but you know what I mean, the, 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 um, uh, the appropriate governments in there who will follow the policies that, that we want to pursue. But nonetheless, to the extent that these problems need some kind of supranational institution to be able to best deal with them, I think you're still going to need those EU institutions there in order to be able to be the forum whereby you can bring forward some of these rules. I'll finish in the bar afterwards. Please. <laughs> okay. Um, um, the woman there with the pink top. Um, as someone who is a keen campaigner for the sorry, environment... Sorry, just say who you are. Sorry, oh, just sorry. To I'm you Rachel. Off. I go to Canada School for Girls. Um, as someone who is a keen campaigner for the environment, I was wondering what you think leaving the EU will mean for the UK's plan in mitigating against climate change. Well, I think that the EU um, has, has done a pretty, pretty good job on, on climate change, certainly compared to what the UK would have done on our own. Um, and as I mentioned in the speech, you know, there have been plenty of evidence that in Paris the EU did play you know, a very positive role. Now, you know, most of my time I would be spending saying, you know, Paris didn't go far enough and it's not fast enough, and that's true too. But I think it's certainly the case that by having 28 countries working together, we both increase the ambition of some of the countries, you know, countries like Poland or Bulgaria, for example, for whom this isn't a particular um, uh, priority. We, we both were able to pull them along, um, as well as being, a, you know, a serious block then vis-a-vis -vis the US and, and, and China and others, to, to really be able to put pressure on them to raise their game. So I think when it comes to the international negotiations, it's clear that by acting within the EU we can have greater clout. And when it comes to our own environmental policies here in the UK, it's often been as a result of EU regulations that we've increased the percentage of renewable energy that we're supposed to be um, generating. Um, we've had some, unfortunately, Britain was successful in, in, in stopping um, some of the energy efficiency directives being binding, but nonetheless, they have you know, provided a context and, 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 some, and some notional targets, at least, for us to increase our energy efficiency. So I think there's a strong argument that you can make to say that if we withdrew from the EU, um, it would not be good for climate policy. And if you were to do a little um, analysis, as the independent newspaper helpfully did, of some of the leading voices in the Brexit uh, campaign and people who deny the reality of climate change, there is a rather interesting uh, overlap of the two. Um, and we can speculate as to why that might be in terms of people who don't like being told what to do by others. But um, it is, I think, quite a clear um, correlation that, 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 that you know, certainly some of the leading lights in, in, in the out campaign are also the same leading lights who, who do not want us to be acting on climate change. Okay, um, can I have the, uh, yes, can I have that person in pink at the back? Um. <laughs> um, well, I'm Joey from St. James Union Boys School, um, AS's, but um, I'm just wondering how you feel Switzerland withdrawing their 
bid for membership after 24 years will affect either of the campaigns because um, it was used as an example of a, a, a country in Europe, not in the EU, and it would be quite interesting to see how that affects the campaigns. It's a really good question, and um, I don't know. I mean, I can imagine that the out campaign will make more of it um, because to the extent that the in campaign is saying that Switzerland doesn't have a great position in terms of not having influence over the, the rules of the single market um, and, and paying to get access to it, you, you, know, you might imagine that the natural um, consequence of that would be that they might just think, well, let's, let's you know, go the whole hog so that we can have uh, control over it. And if they withdraw their bid for membership, then I suppose there could be a short-term boost for the out campaign. To be honest, I, I, I hope that it doesn't make very much difference either way because I, I do think that all of this um, speculation and, 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 and essentially fear-mongering on, on both sides is turning people off. I mean, I don't know if you heard the radio this morning, but the first sort of set of headlines on the Radio 4 Today programme, you know, it was just barrage after barrage of, 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 of claims and counterclaims, and it just puts people off. And I thought the one thing that we learned from the Scottish referendum campaign was that it, it just, you know, to, to have you know, employee, employers writing to their employees kind of threatening them that if they vote... Um, out, then, then, then the company's going to up sticks and go. I, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's helpful, to be honest. And so I hope we'll learn from this that, 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 and actually focus on, on what the situation here is in the UK. Yes, right. Now, as it happens, we've got stacks of questions. I might just take two, if that's all right. Um, so can I have um, this gentleman here and then this lady with the glasses? <laughs> uh, Rick Bennett. Um, Ex-British Telecom, some some years ago now. Um, Just speak up a bit. Yes, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, I I listened to the news, um, as I dare say most people have in in the audience, uh, since the referendum's been announced. And it it, it strikes me that it's almost the first item on the news um, ever since the referendum's Mm. been announced. And we've got four months of <laughs> campaigning uh, to go. Yes. Uh, and doubtless the politicians will become exhausted and, and, and so will the electorate. Um, and I just wondered if you could comment on uh, how you see the, this campaign developing on both sides over a very long period of time and whether this will affect the uh, number of people that vote in the <laughs> referendum. Okay, and if you can just pause and we'll have this woman here, please. Um, I'm Wendy Rosebottom, um, a retired teacher, voted in in 1975, always considered myself European first and British second. Um, my question is, when are you and some of the people who might actually have some positive ideas about staying in the EU going to be heard I listened today to Saji Javid saying, well, he decided to stay in, even though with his heart he really wanted to be out, but he thought it might be safer to be in. I hear that day after day after day from people who are saying we need to remain in because we don't know what's going to happen. On the other hand, the the, uh, Leave people seem to actually want to move our little island out somewhere west of Rock Hall and sit there, you know, make a fortress. When are we going to start hearing some positives, is my question. 
Yeah, I'll do, I'll do it in reverse order if that's right. I mean, I, I so agree with you. I mean, the parliamentary debate was just exactly as you describe as well, the one that was a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and so you had Philip Hammond, you know, who was supposed to be being the key person at the dispatch box making the case for in. And it's sort of saying, oh, well, I want, I want to assure you I don't love the EU. Don't worry, I don't. It's almost like you have to say that in order to win yourself the right to be heard. Um, and, and it is dispiriting and it isn't motivating. And, um, I mean, we are hoping to, 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 to um, get the, the more um, positive messages out there. I think one of the problems that we have, as ever, is a resource problem. There's a rather wonderful group called Another Europe is Possible, which has all kinds of, 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 of people and, you know, welcomed everybody to, to, to go along and, and look at it online and, and join up. But, you know, that, that is a kind of a a locus where people can sort of find information and ho hopefully some soon there will be sort of some draft leaflets and things that people can, can use. Um, but it's, it is, you know, literally held together by sellotape and string because we don't have the resources to really make that work. Um, the Green Party's own campaign is launching in a couple of weeks' time. Um, I, I, I think Alan Johnson for the Labour Party is going to get going pretty soon, but I, I think we've got to hurry up with this stuff because that really leads on to the question in the front over here about, you know, four months of all of this negative stuff is just going to put people off. I mean, you know, you're asking what difference will it make to the, to the outcome and to the vote. I mean, I suspect there's probably some inverse proportion to the number of negative messages on both sides that are heard and the number of people that can be bothered to drag themselves to the voting booth on, uh, on June the 23rd. So I really hope... That, 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 that both of the main campaigns do, do learn from this, that we need to have a, a, a more diverse debate. And while I'm at it, I don't know if you've noticed, but practically everybody's a man who's having, a, having a, this debate. And I think you know, there are different sets of, 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 of language and, and, and arguments that sometimes can appeal to different people in, a, in the audience. And at the minute, you know, just to keep banging on about the same very narrow set of, 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 of issues by a very narrow cross-section of people, I think is not the best way to speak to the, the, to the broad and diverse British public. So I think we're very mindful of both the, both the points that you're making and, and hopefully we'll, we'll feed that back. If anybody knows anyone quite rich, <laughs> see me afterwards. Because the, the irony is we don't actually need that much, but just to, a couple of, you know, to have a couple of staff members for these organisations would make a heck of a difference. Okay. Um, so um, this uh, person's been waiting for some time, and then I'll just take someone up the back. I think the per, the, the person with the glasses on the second row. <laughs> I, my name's Ian Orr. I'm a retired UK diplomat. You mentioned both in your talk and in answer to some of the questions uh, other sort of uh, progressive politic values, uh, particularly transparency. I'd be grateful if you could say something about comparing the UK's record on things like freedom of information with other countries in the EU and the European institutions uh, across the board, and also particularly with relation to the environment and the balance between so, environmental transparency and commercial in confidence. Okay. I'm Joseph McDonnell. I'm studying my AS levels. I was wondering how significant you think young people's disengagement with politics will be in the result of the referendum. 
Again, if I can do it in reverse order, I mean, I, I think that is a real, um, a, a real danger. Um, and, I mean, again, this is why, you know, I'm hoping that we can deploy Jeremy Corbyn in some senses in, in, in you know, whatever you think of his policies. He was able to reach an awful lot of people, and a lot of people came out who, you know, people had previously thought were just not going to be interested in, in, uh, uh, in, in you know, an internal Labour Party debate, and yet all kinds of, of people came and joined that campaign because there was an inspirational, hopeful, visionary message. Um, and, and that's the challenge that, that we have. And all, all I can say is that we, we are working on a, on, a, on a proposal right now, um, which would be around um, having a, 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 a sort of a, a young people's campaign kind of run by young people using that language and, and, and using the, the, the social media and other ways of, of reaching them and hopefully getting some, um, you know, influencers and celebrities that mean something to, to, to young people to, to be part of that pitch. Um, somehow we've got to create the, 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 the noise and the buzz and the enthusiasm and the energy around it, which at the minute is almost being you know, sucked out of it by the kinds of, of, of campaigning we're seeing so far. So it is going to be a real issue. I think, I think it is interesting, though, as I say, that all of the polls show that young people are by far more likely to, to, to vote in if they, if they do go and vote. I mean, they're much more likely to be positive than, than, than older people. And some of the things that, that are being thought about is what kinds of, of conversations can be engineered between grandchildren and grandparents, for example, because people have done research showing that if, if, if people who are grandparents are thinking about how they're going to vote, if they were going to vote no, one of the things that might vote, make them vote to stay would be if they thought it was in the best interest, interest of their kids and their, and their grandkids. And so to have a conversation at that level might, might be something that could be quite exciting and interesting, and there are some ideas about, about how that could actually be, you know, a, a national day of doing this sort of thing or whatever, but, but just something to try to ensure that... Um, that a different kind of set of messages is, is, is reaching young people. And, 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 and I think a message as well around the fact that, you know, essentially if you look at some of the people who are leading the out campaign, having said I'm not going to be negative, I'm just about to be negative, but that there is that sense of, 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 of don't let these old farts mess up your future. I mean, that isn't a very good slogan, but, but it is that sense <laughs> of, you know... Young people need to have their say. One of the things we fought for, and I'm really sad that we lost, was to make votes for 16 count for this election because in Scotland, votes at 16 really engaged young people because they really felt it was the future of, of, of their uh, country that was at, at stake. Um, we, we didn't get the votes at 16, sadly, for the, uh, for, the, for the referendum, but it's an ongoing campaign that we will still continue to fight beyond this. Um, Yes, your question. I suspect you might know the answer better than, than, than I do, because I, I don't know the answer terribly well in terms of comparing Britain's um, transparency to compared to other EU member states. I suspect that after the introduction of freedom of information, we probably rank pretty, pretty well amongst other member states. Um, I think with, with, um, in contrast to the, the EU as an institution, um, I think it's a more mixed bag. I mean, it's quite interesting, for example, that going back to the famous TTIP that we're talking about a lot today, um, it has been the right of an M MEP to see the TTIP documents, albeit under incredibly regulated conditions, so you're not allowed to take in pen or anything useful to take any notes or, or a much less a mobile phone to photograph pages. Um, but you were allowed to see it. Now, the UK is only very, very reluctantly and only just now saying, oh, all right, then we'll let MPs see it under the same um, conditions. So I suspect there's a, you know, that 
that there are areas where the EU is ahead of the UK. Um, having said that, freedom of information is, is a wonderful thing, which is no doubt why David Cameron's been trying to close it down, but um, <laughs> seems to have done a bit of a U-turn on that just recently, which is good. Um, uh, you were asking about the difference between transparency when it comes to the environment and transparency when it comes to um, corporate interests. And, and, and there, there's certainly, as you will know, uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, a very big distinction that corporate interests are always held to be secret and that so many times you know, an excuse for not making something um, transparent and available is that it would jeopardize corporate interests. And, and the trouble is you can't ever really interrogate that because that's just asserted. Um, and even though you're pretty sure that that's actually a complete fob-off, um, I, 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 it gets very, very difficult to actually be able to provide the ammunition to demonstrate that that's a fob-off. Okay, now we're, we're really coming very close to the end, and so at this point I'm going to ask you a question. Ooh, that's <laughs> um, scary. Um, I, I just want to, to get you to talk a little bit more about um, your thoughts about internationalism, because um, the, the comments you've made have emphasised the freedom of movement of people between European countries, and of course that is a, a function of the European Union, but if you're sitting outside the European Union countries, it doesn't always look that way. I mean, right as we speak, the great issue is the refugee crisis and what we see is European cooperation between Austria, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and some non-European countries, Macedonia, on the Macedonian border to stop people coming into the European Union. So isn't there a danger of moving from the little Englanderism of the out people to actually a kind of little Europeanism of the in people? And isn't that a trend that is currently getting stronger? Right. Um, I mean, I've often heard Nigel Farage make this argument in the sense that he would say... That, sorry, it's a, it's a damning way to deal with that question, wasn't it? <laughs> he didn't put it nearly as articulately as you did. But um, what, what he has said is that um, by prioritising freedom of movement of European uh, nationals, you are kind of um, using up the space, as it were, that we would otherwise be offering to Commonwealth citizens or indeed global citizens. And I have to say, when Nigel Farage makes that argument, is it, it is really quite hard to really believe that he would make the case that if there were fewer Europeans coming into the UK, then somehow those spaces would be freed up for you know, people from you know, whatever the countries of Africa or, 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 or Latin America or, or anywhere else. So I think some people use that argument um, in, in, a, in, a, in a slightly provocative way that doesn't bear a lot of scrutiny. Um, in terms of, 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 of the substantive thing of what you're saying, this danger of a little Europeanism, I guess I could only answer that by saying that I think the kinds of people who are making these kinds of arguments for staying inside the EU are also likely to be the same people who want to see the EU be taking a very positive, outward-looking, um, you know, useful role in, in, in the wider global community. I, th I find the idea that you can think wide enough to have 27 member states but then to stop at that point, 28 member states in total, obviously, uh, is, is, is not very likely. Um, you gave the example, and, and, and I mentioned it briefly in the speech, about what's happening right now, quite rightly, you know, you, you mentioned it in terms of Macedonia, and what does that tell us about European cooperation? Well, it tells us that we're not doing it very well, but it also, I think, when you look at that, reminds you that there is, in principle at least, a framework within which a better solution could be found. And I've been making a distinction throughout tonight, really, between the European institutions on the one hand and the current right-wing incumbents of most of the positions within the European Union. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about the refugee crisis in that context, because the most European bit of the institutions, if you like, the, the commission that isn't 
um, you know, infected by, by either MEPs or, 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 or council members. It was the commission that did come up with a proposal, a reasonable proposal, that would have looked at how you could deal with the refugee crisis in terms of distributing refugees, the responsibility for refugees between different member states dependent on their GDP, their population density, um, how many refugees they've taken in the past. It was a perfectly reasonable set of criteria to try to apply to the question of how do we share the responsibility for the greatest movement of people since the Second World War. And, and that was a part of Europe trying to do that, and it was individual, mostly right-wing governments, who were throwing that back in the face of the Commission and saying, not likely. So... It seems to me that that's, however much that is a failure of Europe, and it is, to me that isn't a failure per se of the institutions, it is a failure of the current incumbents of, of, that, of, of, of the key positions within it. Thank you very much. Um, I think we've heard a, 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 an interesting and, and, and far more nuanced um, defence of the European Union than we're mostly hearing in this debate so far. I mean, we've heard from um, Caroline that... In her opinion, one needs to defend British membership of the European Union, and yet equally strongly we've heard from her the need to rekindle a progressive vision that might engage popular enthusiasm for a European project. And so I'd like you to join me in thanking our speaker for putting this forward to us today. <laughs> <laughs>